Welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Episode 6. Today I'd like to talk about history, what it means, why it matters, what we do with it. Because that's a conversation our society is having right now, not just in North America, but all over the world. Monuments that have stood for decades, and in some cases centuries, are coming down. Buildings are being renamed. And of course, a lot of people are complaining about this. And part of me understands the complaints. You take down a statue, you rename a building, you rename a road or rename a town, and it seems that you're erasing history. That's the argument. Of course, you're not. You're not scrubbing history from the history books. You're not closing museums. So it isn't history that you're eliminating. It's the parts of history that you celebrate. So what I'd like to do today is jump into that part of the conversation that we all seem to be having right now a conversation that's related to the themes of the last few episodes that I've recorded. But I'd like to take a look not just through my eyes, but through the eyes of Friedrich Nietzsche and his wonderful early short book on the advantages and disadvantages of history for life, sometimes also translated as on the uses and abuses of history for life. Now, for the sake of clarity, if anyone wants to follow up on this, I'll be using Peter Preuss's translation published by Hackett page numbers will refer to that if I use them. This is the text I use when I teach Nietzsche. To start, though, what actually is happening, and how long has it been going on? Well, in the U.S. anyway, there's been conversations about particularly Confederate monuments for quite a long time now, but I think I want to take it back to, say, 2015. And the reason I chose 2015 is that's the year of the Charleston shooting, in which a white supremacist gunned down nine members of the congregation of a black church, including the minister and a state senator. In the wake of that shooting, local governments around the U.S. started taking down Confederate monuments. This, of course, sparked protests on the right, the most famous of which is the Unite the Right protest in Charlottesville, in which neo-Confederates, neo-Nazis... KKK members, armed militiamen carrying guns, of course, gathered to ostensibly protect the statue of Robert E. Lee, which was facing removal. And that in itself says a fair bit. The people who were gathered there, Donald Trump's very fine people, his tiki torch-wielding followers parading through the streets at night, chanting, Jews will not replace us, these folks are a, an excellent cross-section of where the most vocal objections to the removal of Confederate monuments are coming from. But of course, the matter doesn't end there. This conversation has gone into overdrive and spread globally in the wake of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations following the death of George Floyd. In Belgium, for example, a statue of Leopold II was recently vandalized and torn down. Now, as for what we can say about old Leo, under his administration of the Belgian Congo in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, about 10 million sub-Saharan Africans were killed, and that is a conservative estimate. I've seen estimates as high as 15 million. And this is when the Belgian Congo was his private property. He was running it as a business. In Bristol and Liverpool and Britain, both major slave ports, statues of slave traders are being vandalized and coming down. And as I've said, in the U.S., dozens of monuments to Confederate figures, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, etc., have come down. Many more remain up, but I suspect a lot of those will be coming down fairly soon. This is also a conversation that Canada is having, largely in the context of our relationship to First Nations. Our first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, put into place outright genocidal policies toward First Nations people in Canada, including the infamous residential schools, but certainly not limited to those. And in the last few years, some statues of Macdonald have come down. Some schools that had been named after him have since been given new names. Meanwhile, the first governor general of what would become Canada, Jeffrey Amherst, after whom the towns of Amherst, Nova Scotia and Amherstburg, Ontario are named, and after whom Amherst Street in Montreal was named until 2019, was a vocal advocate of outright genocidal policies, including 
including the circulation of smallpox-infested blankets. As many of you know, smallpox was probably the biggest single killer of First Nations people following first contact. But what does all this have to do with Nietzsche? Or maybe it would be better to ask, what would Nietzsche have to say about all of this? And to be honest, there is no single straightforward answer to that question. Nietzsche had a very complex relationship with history that changed at least a couple of times over the course of his very productive career. So one thing I can't pretend to be able to do, especially in the length of a single podcast, is to give a definitive take on what Nietzsche would have to say about the conversations we are currently having in our culture. I just don't think that can be done. But if we confine ourselves, as I've decided to do, to the single early work on the advantage and disadvantage of history for life, then I think we can at least get some insights into what he might say. And I've chosen this work, for one thing, because it's short, so it can be handled, or at least substantial chunks of it can be handled in the length of a single podcast, but also because I find much about the argument that he's putting forward here quite compelling. And it's this particular argument that I think has a practical application to what is going on in our society today. Now, Nietzsche, of course, was quite famously an atheist. So am I, though considerably less famously. And the question of the value of anything, without the option of appealing to some kind of supernatural or transcendent authority, is, is an important question. If history is valuable, if anything is valuable, where is that value rooted? For Nietzsche, the value of anything is rooted in life. This makes sense. Valuing is something that humans do. And the notion of value that transcends human experience is, in the absence of any kind of supernatural authority, probably quite absurd. At least I've always found it such. And insofar as, as anything that is to be valued must be valued in accordance to life as it is actually lived by humans, or I might broaden it myself, quite frankly, into life as it is experienced by sentient beings, and what exactly the nature of those sentient beings is will be the subject of future episodes, then that necessarily brings in a degree of subjectivity, doesn't it? Something else that it brings in, and this is very important for Nietzsche, and quite frankly it's also important for me, maybe that's one of the reasons I like this book so much, is a concern for health. That is, Nietzsche is less concerned with questions of good and evil as he is concerned with the health or illness of the culture and of the individuals in the culture. But as then for how we are to value history, we can only value history, from Nietzsche's point of view, in relation to our experience of it, because that's all of it that remains. As Nietzsche puts it in the preface to Advantage and Disadvantage, we require history for life and action, not for the smug avoiding of life and action, or even to whitewash a selfish life and cowardly bad acts, only so far as history serves life will we serve it. And I love that line. Only so far as history serves life will we serve it. This, I think, is the central line, the central idea for the rest of the conversation. We are not to subordinate ourselves to history. We do not owe history anything. We are to use history for life. That is, history has value only insofar as it serves life. And again, in the absence of any transcendent source for value, this is really the only position that makes sense. The dead are dead, and being dead, and therefore no longer existing, they can't be the recipients of any imagined obligations that we might imagine that we have. You can't be obliged to something that doesn't exist. And as for God, or the gods, or the transcendent, or however you want to put it, we can't appeal to that either. It's no more real than the dead. We are the only possible locus of value, and only for so long as we continue to draw breath. 
But there are healthy and unhealthy ways that we can and do relate to history. And the conversation that we're now globally having over the preservation or destruction or transferal of monuments, for example, from the public space to museums, addresses all of the ways in which Nietzsche describes the human relationship to history, the individual and cultural relationship to history. As for how Nietzsche sees this as relating to history, he sums this up nicely in part two of Advantage and Disadvantage, which is on page 14 of Preuss's text. History belongs to the living man in three respects. It belongs to him so far as he is active and striving, so far as he preserves and admires, and in so far as he suffers and is in need of liberation. To this triplicity of relations correspond three kinds of history, a monumental, an antiquarian, and a critical kind of history. And what Nietzsche does for the first half of the book is to discuss each of these types of history in the context of the advantage and the disadvantage that each presents. So what I would like to do is to discuss these advantages and disadvantage in the context of our ongoing and quite contentious conversation about how we treat monuments, how we treat names on buildings, how we treat the names of towns in the context of the history that those names bear. Before doing that, though, I need to delve back into part one and and discuss the three ways that Nietzsche names in which we can actually experience history. That is, we can experience history unhistorically, historically, or what he calls superhistorically. So let's take a brief look at each of those. I think these three ways of experiencing history are best understood in terms of narrative. As for the unhistorical experience of history, this is the experience he attributes animals as having. That is, they're simply in the moment. They are fully present. They are not conscious of a past. They're not anticipating a future. At least this is how Nietzsche sees it. And I realize that there's a lot of cognitive science that's happened between Nietzsche's day and ours that demonstrates a fair bit more cognitive ability in animals or in non-human animals than he was aware that they experienced. Just take that as given. So for Nietzsche to experience life unhistorically is simply to be unselfconsciously in the moment. When a horse is eating grass, it is not in its own head constructing a story about a horse eating grass. And in that state, we are free of anxiety on the one hand and regret on the other. Precisely, I think, because we are free of narrative. We're not imagining ourselves in a story. We're simply acting. And while this is the type of history typically experienced by non-human animals, according to Nietzsche, it is also something that humans do and something that humans need in the right measure. And while the unhistorical is, we might say, below the level of narrative, the superhistorical is above the level of narrative. It's understanding history, as Nietzsche says, as an accident. In his words, the blindness and injustice in the soul of each agent as the condition of all activity. From the superhistorical perspective, there's no story. The world, Nietzsche says, is complete and achieves its end at every single moment. That is, there's no teleology, there's no upward or downward trajectory. No good guys, no bad guys. Simply an endless stream of every detail. No selection process. No emphasis. No inclusion. No exclusion. So the superhistorical perspective is to be aware of everything, or at least to be aware that there is an everything to be aware of. And of course, being aware of everything and understanding, even trying to understand how big that is, makes the construction of meaning, which is something we do through narrative, virtually impossible. So to view history from both the unhistorical and the superhistorical perspective is to view history 
or to experience history in the absence of meaning. If you're unhistorical, there's no need for meaning. And if you're superhistorical, there's no possibility of meaning. One way of looking at that is the person, and I used to be this person, who would view human events, all of human history, as so submicroscopic in the context of the age of the cosmos, the size of the cosmos, that no matter how serious things looked on a human scale, I could think myself in a superior position by lifting myself above it and looking down and seeing it as meaningless, seeing it as no different from ants scrambling in their, uh, in their nests. And this is no way to live. It's a useful perspective sometimes, but it's no way to live all the time. And this brings us around to history, the historical perspective. This is the perspective of narrative. Etymologically, history simply means what is written. And it's useful to think of it that way. History isn't everything that happened. That's the super historical perspective. History is a choice. It's a choice of what to include and what to exclude so that you can tell a story. History is a story. In fact, the word story is simply an abbreviation of the word history. And we all have different relationships to stories. We all have different positions in stories. And we all want different kinds of story to be told. That's really important right now. But it's also in stories, in narrative, in history, that we find meaning. It's only in narrative that we can find meaning. So when we address the conversation that our society is having right now about how we should treat history, what we're actually addressing is what our society means. And broadly speaking, you know, there are finer points within this, but broadly speaking, there are two camps at the moment. For convenience sake, and I think these are not bad labels, I will call them progressive and conservative camps because I'm too polite to call conservatives regressives. And in any case, once we get around to the question of what history should look like, we get around to the relationship of individuals and cultures with history itself. Now, Nietzsche proposes an interesting idea, and I've always liked this idea, and that is because in the modern period, we have developed a longer-range understanding of what history actually is, of how much history there is. There is the potential for all of that history to become crushing to the individual and to the culture, depending on the strength of each. So this is not an absolute limit. These limits are determined by the actual individuals in question, by the societies in question. How much history can you bear? How much history can your society bear? Up to not long before Nietzsche's time, in the West, it was generally believed that the world, the universe, was, well, say, 6,000 years old or so, if we go with Bishop Usher's chronology, based upon biblical chronology. But the geology of the late 18th and early mid-19th centuries, to say nothing of the theory of evolution, completely blew that apart. It made the universe older than had previously been imagined in the West. Now, the Hindus have a, a, a universe that's billions of years old, but we're not talking about them right now. But what happens when, what happens to a culture that's accustomed to a universe that's a few thousand years old, and all of a sudden we're talking about millions and hundreds of millions, and now that we get up actually into 20th and 21st century cosmology, billions of years. How do you make a narrative in that? How much of that history can you bear before it crushes the possibility of meaning out of you? So Nietzsche's solution to this problem is simply to draw horizons. He speaks of the ability to forget, the idea that forgetting can actually be good. And speaking as someone who grew up before the internet, I'm all on board with that. Because the shit I did in my 20s, I don't want hanging around forever. It's gone. It was never filmed. It was never Facebooked. It's just gone. 
And I'm glad because I'm not the same person I was then and I don't want that person coming back to haunt me. There's a virtue in forgetting. Memory can be a burden. Nietzsche recognizes that memory can be a burden, both for individuals and for cultures. So the question then arises, what do we choose to remember? What do we choose to forget? Remembering always that for Nietzsche, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, history, insofar as it is needed, and it is needed, is needed for the service of life. We don't owe history anything. It's a resource for us to use to our own purposes so that we can build, from Nietzsche's point of view, a healthy society, a healthy psyche. That's the goal. So from here, where do we go with the three types of history that Nietzsche proposes? Well, let's start with monumental history. This one's pretty straightforward. It's simply the record of great individual achievements. And Nietzsche asks, what is the advantage to the present individual then of the monumental view of the past, the concern with the classical and the rare of earlier times. It is the knowledge that the great which once existed was at least possible once, and may well again be possible sometime. Okay, this makes sense, doesn't it? That is, history understood monumentally gives us something to aspire to. It shows us what human beings are capable of at their best. Now, we, of course, are not always at our best, and sometimes it's difficult to see past our own limitations and past our own mediocrity. The monumental view of the past provides a record of people who are able to rise above their time and their mediocrity and do great things. So, monumental history, then, is a, is a testament to human potential. It's an encouragement and an incitement to achievement to, if not outright greatness, at least excellence. And I think we all have figures and events that inspire us. And these will certainly be different figures and different events as you look at different people and as you look at different cultures. But it's something that every culture does and that every person does. These can be martial or political achievements. They can be artistic achievements. They can be outstanding moral achievements. But there are some problems, some dangers, with the monumental view of history. One that Nietzsche points out is the disregard of causes, the washing away of the uniqueness or the papering over of the uniqueness of particular historical circumstances. And the tendency then to see these monumental achievements as what he calls effects in themselves, ripped out of context and simply held up as exemplars, with no sense of the complexities of interrelationships and circumstances that led to them being exactly what they were and that in themselves are not repeatable. Another possible problem that arises from the papering over of causes or the obscuring of causes is the danger of the state using the monuments of history for propaganda, of holding up the achievements and the people that they sanction as great, as paragons and ideals toward which they want the populace to aspire. As Nietzsche puts it, monumental history deceives with analogies, with tempting similarities, the courageous are enticed to rashness, the enthusiastic to fanaticism. That is, monumental history in the hands of the state potentially becomes a very constraining narrative, one that allows relatively few options for the kinds of things to which people are encouraged to aspire. A related danger is that, in a sense, the weight of the past can suffocate the present, it can suffocate it with outdated standards, with good taste. Nietzsche has no use for good taste, and quite frankly, I agree with him. Good taste, from his point of view, is simply the old and privileged, comfortable people dictating what they think culture ought to be for everyone else. I should maybe say a little more about that. Looked at from an artistic point of view, monumental history taken to this extreme, treats culture more or less as a museum, 
it looks at certain achievements and says these are great. Not only are these great, but these are the things by which we will measure. These are the things that will form our standard. And the minute you do that, you effectively ossify your standard. If your standard for music, for instance, is definitively set on, say, Bach, then anything that's not Bach is not going to measure up. Any deviation from Bach is going to be a decline, a fall of some sort. And it's from this monumental history, I think, and the tendency I think that all cultures have to set their standards in the past, that we get such nonsense as the myth of the fall, the lost golden age, an irretrievable past toward which we ought to aspire because it was better than the present, rather than aspiring to a future that is better than anything we've had yet. All appeals to a golden age, to turning back the clock, are appeals to ossified standards, I think. They are statements to the present and the future that the only way they can ever measure up is by going back to the past. As Nietzsche puts it, Monumental history is the disguise in which their hatred of the mighty and the great of their time parades as satisfied admiration of the mighty and great of past ages. Cloaked in this disguise, they turn the proper sense of monumental history into its opposite. Whether they know it or not, at any rate, they act as though their motto were, let the dead bury the living. And I really, really want to emphasize this one. And not just aesthetically, not just morally, but broadly in a social-political context. Because we hear all the time, don't we, that society is in a state of moral decay. Hell, I hear it among the 18-year-olds I teach. And here, I have to agree with Thoreau that there is no sadder sight than a young pessimist. And there's part of me, whenever I hear that, that wants to choke the life out of the people who told them, who taught them, who drilled it into their heads that the world that their world will never measure up to the world of the dead. And I'm wondering what this moral decay might be compared to, say, 500 years ago, the number of people who are empowered, enfranchised, not enslaved, is proportionally far greater than it ever has been at any point in recorded history. If that's a moral decay... Decay the fuck out of me. I'm there. Sign me up, baby. I'm all on board for that kind of decay. And this brings us around to antiquarian history. Antiquarian history rests in the individual, in individuals, identifying the history of, well, Nietzsche says the history of the city, the history of their culture, the history of their society, with their personal history. As he says, the history of the city becomes the history of himself. There's an identification of the individual with the cultural narrative in which the person is embedded. That is, antiquarian history gives a sense of belonging, of, of organic continuity. It lets us recognize, it helps us recognize, that we're not simply floating in what Allen Ginsberg refers to as the animal soup of time, much as I love Ginsberg's poetry. It's in the healthy approach to antiquarian history that we see people celebrating their own cultures, celebrating the histories of their city, their culture group, their country. And when I say celebrating, I don't mean celebrating by means of putting others down. As a person of Scottish descent, I occasionally attend the local Highland Games. Now, in celebrating my Scottish heritage, I am not in any way suggesting that people of non-Scottish heritage are less than me. This is a healthy approach to antiquarian history, recognizing a continuity, but also recognizing that other people have their continuities too. It's the antiquarian spirit that preserves and restores historic buildings that are falling into decay, that in the 1930s interviewed aging black Americans who had been born into slavery and had living memory of that institution to share, and then stored those recordings in the Library of Congress for everyone who wanted to listen to them to be able to find them. And by the way, if you haven't done so, I recommend that you 
listen to some of these recordings or read some of the transcripts, which I have done. These are important voices that need to be part of our present conversation. But of course, there is a disadvantage to this type of history too. And here we'll just take a look at what Nietzsche says. Here there is always one danger very near. The time will finally come when everything old and past, which has not totally been lost sight of, will simply be taken as equally venerable, while whatever does not approach the old with veneration, that is, the new and growing, will become rejected and treated with hostility. And later in the same paragraph, when the sense of a people hardens in this way, when history serves past life so as to undermine further and especially higher life, when the historical sense no longer preserves life but mummifies it, then the tree dies unnaturally, beginning at the top and slowly dying toward the roots. And in the end, the root itself generally decays. Antiquarian history itself degenerates the moment that the fresh life of the present no longer animates and inspires it. And as this danger reaches its culmination, Nietzsche has this to say, the fact that something has become old now gives rise to the demand that it must be immortal. For if one calculates what such an ancient thing as an old custom, a religious faith, an inherited political privilege has experienced during its existence, the amount of piety and veneration paid by individuals and generations then it seems presumptuous or even impious to replace such an ancient thing with a new one and to compare such a vast sum of acts of piety and veneration with the single-digit numbers of what is becoming and present. The danger here, then, in short, is that oldness becomes a good in itself, and once old becomes synonymous with good, as in the good old days, then the new becomes definitionally a threat. If a tradition or a religious faith or a political privilege is preserved with the justification that this is our tradition, and if that's the extent of the justification, the question, is the tradition good, becomes impossible to ask because age has become synonymous with goodness. And insofar as we, I think, have to admit that not all traditions contribute equally to the health of a culture or the health of individuals in a culture, then some standard other than age is certainly required when we're deciding in the present how much of the past to preserve. And this brings us around to critical history, specifically that type of history that's able to take a skeptical eye to the past and to prevent the blind idolization of past achievements, past structures, past faiths, etc. Nietzsche describes critical history as the strength to shatter and dissolve something to enable him to live. Or as he puts it a little later, and we're in section 3 right now of the book, it takes a great deal of strength to be able to live and forget how far living and being unjust are one. This one takes a bit of work to wrap your mind around. The notion of shattering and dissolving something to enable one to live is pretty important. The ability to choose what to keep, what to throw away, what to elevate and what not to elevate is exactly the ability to make room for one's present on a stage already taken up by the past. That is, to approach history critically is to prevent or to work against the blind idolization of past achievements or past structures, past faiths, past privileges. It's to recognize that one has power over history, that is to say, one has power over the narrative in which one lives, and it is to use that power, to use it for the benefit of one's own life, to use it for the benefit of the present. That much, at least, is pretty straightforward. But what are we to make of the assertion that living and being unjust are one? Nietzsche says that realizing this takes a great deal of strength. So what is that realization exactly? Because this is important, and I think it may be a little uncomfortable. Here we need to remember that for Nietzsche, there is no transcendent principle. That is, there's no transcendent principle of justice to which one can appeal. Everything Everything that we value, everything that we know, knowing itself, 
arises from life. Life precedes anything else that the living do. Life precedes any principle or set of principles that guide how we relate. So what he's throwing in our face here is the perhaps uncomfortable realization that living, living itself, is not subject to justice and can't be subject to justice because life necessarily precedes justice. I want to turn that one over a bit. Even sitting here in my quiet apartment, speaking into a microphone, I can almost hear the Platonists among you screaming, no, there is such a thing as justice. Justice is real, damn it. And for Nietzsche, it's not. Not in the sense, not in the sense that I think most people consider it. Not in the sense that it's outside of life, outside of the living. It's just something we do. It's something we choose to do. And in asserting or in recognizing that all living is unjust, that is, you can't live without being unjust, I think Nietzsche is just being nakedly honest here. This is simply another way of looking at those bits of the past, those bits of past culture, that maybe, from their own perspectives, have earned a place in memory but that we're simply deciding we don't need. Why? Because we have our own purposes. We have our own reasons. We have our own agendas that are not necessarily determined by the agendas of the past. I mean, to take an analogy that may or may not work, if, if my objective is to eat and some random chicken's objective is to not be eaten, then from the chicken's point of view, Dinner is looking pretty unjust. From my point of view, starvation is not exactly peachy. And fine. You don't want to eat meat. Say the same thing about friggin' chickpeas. I don't care. The point is that life makes room for itself, and it doesn't need to ask permission to do so. Yeah, I think that's the way, that's the way I want to explain it. Life makes room for itself. It will. It always will. And while making room, it doesn't also need to make excuses. The danger, though, is that if we take critical history too far, we might fall into the illusion of a disconnection from the stuff we don't like, the stuff that we've rejected. As Nietzsche says, if we condemn those aberrations and think ourselves quite exempt from them, the fact that we are descended from them is not eliminated. Okay, let's pause on that one for a second. What Nietzsche is recognizing here is the distinction between history and events. Events are just what happened. History is the story that's told about them. And regardless of the story you tell, the things that happened still happened. And things that really happen and things that happen have effects. The danger for Nietzsche is that we'll be so critical of things that we don't like that we will expunge the memory of them while we are still being affected by them. We will silence the story while still living in the shadow of the events. So for Nietzsche, life isn't only what we make of it. We're not in a purely subjective mental landscape here. Cause and effect are real, but stories are also real. Narrative is also real. And there is a way in which we can view history critically that's conducive to a healthy society and a healthy individual psyche. And there's a way in which we can be so critical of history as to whitewash all the bits we don't like and therefore no longer know ourselves. And now, before I move on to apply Nietzsche's view of history to current events, I'd like to wrap up the section on critical history with this wonderful line. For the fighters who use critical history for life, there is even a remarkable consolation, namely to know that this first nature also was at some time or other a second nature and that every victorious second nature becomes a first. That is, Nietzsche recognizes that we are continually creating ourselves. The nature that we take to be our first nature, our starting point, is simply what previous narratives have produced. Our being, in other words, arises from within and is subject to us exerting authority over it, to us reshaping it, 
it's subject to our decisions. Our being does not descend from above or arise from outside of us. It is, in every sense that matters, our own. So what do these questions of horizons and narrative and the three types of history have to do with the conversation much of the world's having right now about monuments? Well, let's see. If we start in the States, which is probably where we should start because that's where the current movement began, then the main conflict is over monuments to the Confederacy, to Confederate figures, to take them down, to leave them up, to move them to other locations. Now, as of 2017, there were some 700 plus monuments to the Confederacy up in the States. This is according to the Center for Southern Poverty Law. And they were in 31 states. That's interesting in itself, isn't it? Because there were only 11 states in the Confederacy. So 20 states have monuments up to the losing side of a war in which they didn't fight. Now, since 2015, as I mentioned, several dozen of these monuments have been taken down. Many have been moved to other locations. That is, locations not in the public square, but where the history itself is still preserved. And this is a difference I think I need to highlight, even though I mentioned it already. The difference between preserving history and celebrating particular aspects of it. Because what you hear, particularly on the right, hell, two days ago, Donald Trump standing in front of Mount Rushmore said that there were people trying to take down their monuments to their culture and to destroy their history. And I have some questions about that as well, which I'll get to. The first, though, is simply a statement of fact. The removal of a statue from a public square, a place of reverence and celebration, and the transferring of that statue to a museum is in no way erasing history. So the narrative being propagated is, in many cases, a false narrative, a straw man, against which it's fairly easy to argue and appear that you've actually said something. So while someone who opposes the removal and transference of these statues to a museum or other place of preservation might see this from a Nietzschean point of view as an undue constraining of horizons, an elimination of history that the people demanding the removal can't bear. That is, while someone on the right might try to posit those on the left as unable to stand up to the realities of history, that is, as weak, history is not, as I said, being eliminated in this process. Moreover, because we are looking at a contest of narratives here, the question of whose narrative will win is very much of the moment. When conservatives say they're destroying our history, what do they mean by our? Who is us? Who is us to Donald Trump? Who is us to the Trumpledites who support him? Because you can be pretty sure it's not the descendants of the people for whose slavery those traitors were fighting to preserve. And when the conservative voices say that their culture is under threat, that their culture is being eliminated through the removal of these statues, what are we to understand their culture to mean? And the answer, historically, is white supremacy. Most of the Confederate statues in the U.S., by a wide margin, went up not after the end of the Civil War, which is when you would expect monuments to fallen soldiers to go up. They went up between the 1890s and the 1950s, that is, the period covered by Jim Crow and segregation. These were not monuments intended to commemorate the lost noble cause. These are monuments intended to keep black people in their place. These are visual statements of a culture of white supremacy that was very active and continues to be active, but at the time very active, for example, through the KKK, who had sort of a golden age in the 1920s. These are implicit threats. This is a time when if black people got, and the word often used was uppity, a very racist term, by the way, they were inviting burning crosses, and lynchings, and, oh, it looks like we're back to lynchings today, too, it would seem. 
So the narrative being preserved by these statues is only the narrative of a noble lost cause. If you don't know history, if you buy into the revision that says they weren't fighting for slavery, they were really fighting for states' rights, and then you read the documents for, that describe the rights that they're actually fighting for, and it tends more often than not to be the right to own people. But if you look at history, if you read the historical documents, if you look at when these things went up and why they went up, then they are not celebrating an entire culture at all, are they? They are celebrating a culture of white supremacy. And the voices, the voices that are crying to have them taken down, removed, put someplace where they can be properly contextualized, are not the voices who are trying to eliminate history. They're actually voices who are arguing for the expansion of history. The voices of the historically unheard. The voices of the descendants of disempowered, enslaved ancestors whose stories never got to be told, and whose freedom following 1865 was systematically undermined by the system of prison peonage that began after the period of Reconstruction was over. So the argument here is not that less of the story be told or that the story be buried. It's that the whole story needs to be told, not the traitor generals who fought to destroy a country so that they could preserve slavery. That's not the story. The story is also the recordings of former slaves held in the Library of Congress, and accessible on YouTube in many cases, by the way. The story is one of racial privilege and racial power dressed up in a nice uniform and fancy clothes. And the change that's being demanded is not, as I said, that the narrative be amputated, but that the current truncated version of what the story is actually be fleshed out. I'm reminded, as I sit here talking about this, of, of what was going on in Eastern Europe 30 years ago, give or take. I remember in 1989 watching the Berlin Wall come down, and I remember in the early 90s, watching statues of Stalin and Lenin be pulled down by celebratory crowds of people who were no longer living under the shadow of totalitarianism. I don't think any of those people have forgotten who Stalin was, who Lenin was, what the Berlin Wall meant. The physical monuments don't need to be in the public space in order to constitute history. Statues to Stalin were not put up so that people would know who Stalin was. They were put up as testaments to Stalin's power. The monuments to Confederate generals are not put up so that people don't forget who Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson was. These are, in more cases than not, reminders of white power aimed at black people's eyes and minds. So yeah, there is a conflict here. And the conflict is much bigger than statues. The conflict is what story is going to be told? What is the narrative? Will it continue to be the whitewashed lie that is the noble lost cause of the Confederacy? Or will it acknowledge the facts, the cause and effect facts that have created the nation that is currently wrestling with itself again? Will Americans finally have finally find the honor that the defeated Germans found after the Second World War. There are no monuments to Hitler. There are no monuments to Goebbels, to Himmler. But their history is known, known to the extent that it's even illegal to deny it. Will the Americans finally discover that degree of honor in themselves and that degree of honesty in themselves? And it's not just Americans. As I said, statues of, for example, Leopold II are being pulled down. And why not? That son of a bitch doesn't deserve to be remembered honorably, doesn't deserve to be celebrated. His mass murder is on a par with Hitler's and Stalin's. And why not take down the statues and plaques that commemorate slave traders who are responsible for 
so much of the wealth that flowed into the British Isles during the triangular trade. No one's going to forget that slavery happened. There are libraries full of books and accounts on slavery. It is one of the most studied historical phenomena in the world. We need to distinguish between acknowledging and celebrating. And we also need to recognize that we are in a position, and we're always in this position, of deciding what our story is, and therefore what our cultures are and what our cultures mean, because that's up to us. Will an unhealthy attachment to antiquarian history, the preservation of the old because it's our tradition, continue to deafen our ears to the voices that have been silenced for centuries and that are now demanding to be heard? So the question of how much history one can bear is more appropriately asked here to the conservatives. How much history can you bear, Buttercup, when you're confronted with the fact that the culture you celebrate was monstrous? And no, I haven't forgotten that Canada is also involved in this conversation. I mentioned earlier on in this episode that Amherst Street in Montreal, named for the genocidal Governor General Jeffrey Amherst, had been renamed. Well, its new name since 2019 is Atteken Street, an indigenous name, a name that in the Mohawk language means brothers and sisters. This is not a burial of history. This is not an elimination of history. This is an expansion of history. This is an inclusion in the narrative of people and peoples who have historically had narratives imposed upon them, and calls to rename the many, many Sir John A. Macdonald schools in Canada are often accompanied by suggestions of First Nations names and supported by First Nations communities. This, again, is not an elimination of history, but an expansion of it, an acknowledgement of it, a proper application of critical history, as opposed to a knee-jerk, tradition-based support of antiquarian history, of preserving the old because it's old, and we've always had it that way. Again, you need to define we, because of course the question of who we are is exactly the conversation, is, ex is exactly the question that we're asking right now. The dominant voices in Western discourse historically have belonged to one particular demographic, and this isn't the only demographic that deserves a voice. And as Nietzsche points out, when the veneration of an inherited political privilege is challenged, it can easily seem, especially to the traditional holders of that privilege, that the challenge is impious, that the challenge is wrong. But these challenges that we're seeing all over the world are not challenges intended to eliminate or efface history. They are all challenges demanding that more history be told, that more history be acknowledged. And here, I need to get a little bit personal again in kind of an embarrassed way. I can remember back to my 20s, and I said before that I'm glad Facebook didn't exist when I was in my 20s. I can remember then, and this is late 80s, early 90s, being quite affronted by the anger that many feminists directed at many men. And my response to all of the stories that I heard about all of the horrible things that men had historically done was, I didn't do it. It's not my problem. It's not my fault. And I bring this up personally because I want to make clear that I can identify with those feelings. I've had those feelings. The white Canadian population today is not the population that set up the residential school. The white American population today is not the population that imported black people from Africa as if they were livestock. But what I was missing out, what I was not quite seeing in my 20s and what I have since understood, is that there is a difference between blame and responsibility. I didn't set up the system from which, by virtue of being a white man, I have benefited, even if it just means not having additional hardship because of my gender and skin color. I didn't set that up, but I have benefited from it in ways probably that I don't even notice because 
I'm so naturalized to them. But benefit comes with responsibility. If I recognize a system as being unjust, and if I recognize that I have benefited from that injustice, that comes with a debt. And the debt is a demand to, at the very least, acknowledge, to educate, which I take very seriously, and to do my best to rectify. That, too, is a narrative choice. As a culture, as individuals, whether Canadian, American, European, what have you, who do we want to be? Do we want to continue to be small? Do we want to continue to celebrate a sliver of history that is really just a history of power and the exercise of power? Or do we want to expand our horizons, not forget until we're comfortable, but expand through discomfort and often through a necessary and difficult humility to a point where us, what we mean by us, is bigger than it has historically been and allows more voices to be heard. Toward the end of Advantage and Disadvantage of History, Nietzsche speaks of the desirability of a culture regaining its youth, of it using history creatively to fashion a new narrative that fits its own needs and its own ends, that doesn't abase itself before the past, that is vigorous and healthy, because it has taken control of its own identity, it's taken control of its own narrative, and it is actively and knowingly making itself. I think this is a point that many cultures, and certainly the cultures of North America, have reached. Will we continue to live within the whitewashed myths that have informed so many school books, generation after generation, that have placed white supremacists and and purveyors of genocide on pedestals in the public square? Or will we acknowledge the voices that those purveyors of genocide, those purveyors of slavery and misery, and their inheritors, their tiki torch-wielding, confederate battle-flag-waving, swastika-tattoo-bearing apologists are trying to preserve at the expense of every voice that has ever been silenced. And that, I suppose, is what I have time for today. Moving forward, just try to remember, and I will try to remember, that the voices calling for the removal of the monuments to white supremacy, to racism, to slavery, to genocide, are not trying to contract our historical horizons because they're proposing alternatives. They are trying to turn a monotone into a symphony, trying to turn a, a brassy, tinny military ditty a march to nowhere, into a celebration of the diversity of life. And that is a better narrative. That is a better history. And with that in mind, I will remind you as always that if you want to talk to me, I'm at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com or eclectichumanist on Facebook. And I would love to hear from you. And until next time, please be kind to each other.